0: The Crimopedia Podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Crimopedia Podcast. Coincidentally, it also happens to be the two-year anniversary of the show. I'm so thankful that you've been listening with me for this long, and I can't thank you enough for your support. I'm excited to see what the future has in store for us here at the Crimopedia Podcast. In celebration of the day, I've kind of put myself through the ringer a little bit, and I'm going to be covering one hell of a case. I say put myself through the ringer because, to be honest, I have been putting this one off, despite it being on my radar for quite some time. And I've been doing that for a few reasons. Firstly, the case itself and the investigations that followed are unbelievably complex. It took a lot just to untangle what even happened in this case. It's so much more complex than I ever knew despite feeling like I had a good grasp on this case before I started my deep dive. Secondly, I've been avoiding this one because it is probably one of the most, if not the most, horrific stories I've ever heard. Robert William Picton's pig farm in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia is reminiscent of what I can only describe as probably our worst nightmares. Given that, I'm going to give you a big content warning for this one. Robert Picton's admitted 49 victims and possibly many more were disfigured, dismembered, and discarded in unimaginable ways. But I think this story is an important one to tell, despite it being unsavory. Many of these victims were from Vancouver's downtown Eastside district, often referred to as the Hastings area or Low Track. Robert Picton's 49 victims were sex workers and drug addicts and were targeted for the same reasons as we've previously discussed. Predators see these women as easy targets, knowing full well that law enforcement doesn't often see crimes against sex workers as urgent matters, or even really anything to attend to at all. But this case beautifully highlights the consequences of inaction when there's crimes against women and sex workers. The Canadian province of British Columbia where this all happened would end up footing the bill for over a hundred million dollars allocated out of the provincial budget to clean up the mess that was made by Robert Picton, both literally and legally. A mess that Vancouver police and the RCMP let go on for decades. But I will be honest. Not much seems to shake me after two years of being in this space but this case is a notable exception. Buckle up because we're going to be here for a while and we certainly have a lot to discuss. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. The city of Vancouver in British Columbia is sandwiched between Burnaby, Surrey, Richmond, and the Strait of Georgia. If you cross the giant water body that is the Strait of Georgia, you'll find yourself in Nanaimo. If you head south, you're suddenly in the United States. The city is densely populated, always expanding, incredibly diverse, and has a rich history. Part of Vancouver's history deals with class inequities and policies that separated the now what are ultra-wealthy from people who are extremely poor. It's impossible to talk about wealth inequality in this area without talking about Vancouver's Downtown Eastside area, or the Hastings area, or Low Track, BC. The Downtown Eastside, known by all three aforementioned names, is a neighborhood district similar to Chinatown or Toronto's Gay Village area. According to many sources I read, this area has both a formal and informal reputation for complex issues such as high levels of drug use, poverty, high crime rates, homelessness, and many residents finding themselves turning to sex work in order to survive. If you dive into the history of Vancouver and the history of the Downtown Eastside's development, you'll find that as the city of Vancouver expanded westward with its development, the Hastings area became poorer and neglected by the city in favor of sending their municipal dollars towards new infrastructure and expansion. These newly developed areas of the city had residents, business owners, and council people that sought bylaws and policies to push homelessness, drug use, and sex workers out of their area. But, not towards social services, as federal funding for subsidized housing had just been scrapped. They just wanted these people away from them, and the province, nor the city, was gonna do anything about it. Thus, many people who were enrolled in the School of Hard Knocks found themselves in Hastings, and many of the needs of this neighborhood were continuously neglected over the years, even when an HIV epidemic was declared in 1997 and the high rate of drug overdoses was considered a public health emergency. A New York Times article from 2011 reads, quote, On its core blocks, dozens of people are shuffling or staggering, flinching with cocaine ticks, scratching at scabs. Except for the young women dressed to lure customers for sex, many are in dirt-streaked clothing that hangs from their emaciated faces. Drugs and cash are openly exchanged, and the alleys are worse. According to the Wiki on this area, the population of the downtown Eastside neighborhood, AKA Hastings, AKA Low Track, is comprised of a significant portion of indigenous peoples, who evidently suffer much more greatly and have a much lower chance of receiving the support needed to combat the incredibly complex issues the neighborhood faces. Upon further reading, I was able to see that Indigenous peoples make up approximately only 2% of Vancouver's population, and yet 40% of their population of sex workers, the vast majority of which reside in the Hastings area. Informally, this area is known for easy drug access, cheap sex, and low law enforcement oversight. They don't really care, as long as you're keeping it on the down-low. Despite that, residents of the downtown eastside area are statistically the most likely of all areas in Canada to die during an encounter with police. The area of the downtown east side has always had a reputation for easy access to sex workers. The city of Vancouver at large has an estimated population of about a thousand, with again the vast majority working in the downtown east side. Due to the rising cost of housing from gentrification of the surrounding areas, plus the varying daily income of street sex work, and the advent of rampant addiction demanding the funds of many of these workers, most of them don't have a safe place to live. A report from the Vancouver Police Department in 2009, although outdated, states that up to two-thirds of them say they have been physically or sexually assaulted while at work. It doesn't take much to imagine how vulnerable many of the residents of the downtown Eastside area are, especially the women, and especially those who are sex workers. Those who want to prey on these women can see that too. Robert Picton found himself wandering the streets of Hastings and Low Track, British Columbia in the 80s after inheriting his parents' farm, plotting to exploit these women in more ways than one. But we'll get to that. Robert Picton was born on October 24th of 1949 to Leonard and Louise Picton of Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Robert was given the nickname Willie, after his middle name of William, which is often used in news reporting, but I'm not fond of using colloquialisms for serial killers, so I'm going to call him Robert. Port Coquitlam, where the family lived, sits just outside of Vancouver city limit, or at least it did back then. If you listened to my episode about Amanda Todd, you should recognize the name of this place, but this case takes place in what is essentially the middle of nowhere. It was very rural, and it was certainly not the same Port Coquitlam that Amanda Todd and her family were living in. The Picton family were pig farmers. That included Leonard, Louise, Robert, Dave, who was Robert's little brother, but not their sister, Linda. Pig farming was the family business, and it was certainly dirty work. According to an article I read by Tim Connolly for medium.com, the farm that the family eventually settled on was a sprawling 17-acre lot littered with quicksand pits and quote, lagoon-like cesspools, whatever that means. No farming is clean or easy work, but it's all the Pictons knew, so it's what they did. However, like I mentioned, Louise and Leonard agreed that Linda, the sister, wouldn't stay. She wouldn't be a pig farmer. According to them, a pig farm was no place to raise a young lady, so she was sent to live with a family member in Vancouver. Thankfully, unlike her other siblings, Linda reportedly grew up to be relatively well-adjusted, but that's about the only happy ending we're going to get today. Robert Pickton and his brother Dave, on the other hand, were sent to work from a young age, even during their years of full-time elementary school. Despite being lenient enough with her daughter Linda to spare her the gruesome job of pig farming, Louise Pickton was quite demanding with her boys and certainly didn't shy away from treating them as regular employees. Just to set the scene, It's reported that Louise Pickton was rigid, with few teeth and an interesting, straggly hairdo similar to how her son Robert's hair would turn out in his old age. She was quote-unquote unsavory, as was the rest of the family, and dressed almost exclusively in 90s over working pants. Louise Pickton was a workaholic. She often prioritized the pig's wellness and the family business over the wellness or hygiene of her sons, likely knowing that their developmental path was already laid out for them in life. Eventually, they'd inherit the pig farm, and so they didn't need to worry about being tired, dirty, or well-socialized at school. It's reported that both boys would show up to their classes unwashed from working the night before and covered in whatever you get covered in at a pig farm. The number one feature about Robert Picton that many from his childhood remember was his smell. Both him and his brother Dave were nicknamed Stinky Piggies. But the smell clearly didn't bother Robert. In one article I read by Stevie Cameron for the Toronto Star, if Robert wanted to hide away from someone, be it his mom or more likely his abusive father, he would happily crawl into a gutted pig carcass and wait. Yeah, don't say I didn't warn you. Despite her harshness, Robert Picton was actually quite fond of his mom, likely largely in part because whatever his mom would say or do that was mean or harsh would pale in comparison to his dad. If Louise Picton was mean, then Leonard Picton was cruel. Thus, Robert didn't have a lot of interaction with him growing up and just tried to stay out of his way, often leaning into his mother. At the very least, Louise Pickton was a strong matriarch and took the role seriously, but she had an interesting way of doing things, a way of, quote-unquote, handling business, that extended far beyond the scope of the farm. There's one story that I read over and over again in reports about Robert Pickton's childhood, and I'd like to share it with you, because I think it exemplifies what I mean by this quite well. In October of 1967, Robert's little brother Dave was first learning how to drive, and on one morning just before 8am, he decided to take his father's 1960 bright red pickup truck out for a spin. I'm not sure if this trip had a purpose or a destination, but I do know that Dave was by himself, and he wasn't a very good, careful, or experienced driver. Somehow, on his drive, one way or another, Dave Pickton would end up crashing right into 14-year-old Tim Barrett, who was outside walking, possibly on his way to school, and completely unaware that a pickup truck was barreling towards him. When Dave got out of the truck after the accident, he could see that Tim's quote-unquote crumpled body was in very bad shape. It was easy to see that the kid was badly hurt, and so Dave, in a panic, raced home to tell his mom what he had done. Louise Pickton decided to examine the scene for herself, and upon arrival, without saying a word, she decided that the best course of action was to shove the broken-bodied 8th grader into a ditch that dipped off the side of the road and leave. Knowing full well the implications of what had just happened, Dave Pickton immediately drove down to the local Port Coquitlam mechanic, a guy who had worked on Pickton cars before. If the way they were going to handle this situation was to cover it up, Then Dave needed to get the large dent left in the truck out as soon as possible, and also asked to get the red paint touched up, which was house paint, by the way, and it was already what the truck was covered in. The mechanic fixed the dent, but didn't touch the paint for unknown reasons, and Dave was forced to go home and try to move on from the violence he had just witnessed. Most shockingly, his mom shoving a 14-year-old decrepit boy into a ditch. Around one in the morning, Tim Barrett's parents reported him missing after not returning home. It didn't take long for people to start searching for Tim, including police, neighbors, and volunteers, and it was early that same morning when one of them found Tim in the ditch, deceased. An autopsy conducted later on revealed that the 14-year-old boy actually died from drowning due to the positioning of his body as it rolled down the hill into the ditch and the small amount of water that had built up in the trough. What's important to note here is that Tim Barrett did not die from the injuries sustained when Dave Picton hit him, but they were noted. It was also noted that he wouldn't have died from those injuries. He conclusively, definitively, and determinately died from drowning. We don't know what the repercussions were of this crime exactly, given that Dave Picton was a minor. But one report I read stated he faced only the charge of leaving the scene of a crime, which carried a four-year probationary period. Louise Picton, on the other hand, faced no consequences, despite being arguably the one who actually killed this young boy. It's reported that her role in the death of Tim Barrett was only known amongst locals for a long time, and neither she nor the rest of the family was concerned with what would happen if anyone found out. Louise Pickton had a way of dealing with things, and evidently it was working for her. There's no doubt in my mind that Robert Pickton picked up much of his deviated habits and other ways of doing things from her as well. Robert Pickton struggled in school, unsurprisingly, and he was put in a quote-unquote special class after failing the second grade. But his struggles weren't solely academic. He was reportedly subject to bullying and torment from other kids who obviously took issue with the way Robert and smelled and his lack of ability to conduct himself in a classroom or in public in general. Between his parents' total lack of concern for his well-being, his unhealthy attachment to his mom and adoration of her, and the cruelty he was subject to at the hands of his father, some of which included the slaughter of Robert's beloved pet calf at the age of 12, a bloody scene he would find himself. There was no question of whether or not Robert was developing normally. He was not, and it was unsurprising that he would drop out of school sometime between 1963 and 1964. However, similar to the accident that killed Tim Barrett, an event that by all accounts should have altered the life course of Dave and Louise Picton forever, for Robert, dropping out of school was no problem. Like I mentioned, he already had his future laid out for him, and his future was the pig farm. After leaving school, Robert Picton began working as a meat cutter, while also juggling his responsibilities at the farm. Even then, while in the working world, he maintained his reputation for poor hygiene and a real struggle with socialization. It's reported that even as an adult, he had a fear of showering mostly because his mother only ever enforced irregular baths, which is a routine he kept up with. Eventually, Robert Pickton would go on to care for the farm full-time after his dad, Leonard, passed away at the age of 91 in 1978, followed shortly thereafter by Louise, his mom, who died at the age of 67. There's certainly something to be said about the age difference, considering they died one year apart, and yet we're almost 30 years different in age, but that's neither here nor there, nor the most poignant determinant of Robert Picton's odd conduct in adult life. At this time, the pig farm was appraised at approximately $1 million, despite a fire breaking out the year of his dad's death and killing off about 600 of their pigs. By all accounts, the farm was still desirable to people in the industry, so this asset was divided amongst the children but it was really Robert who was interested in maintaining the responsibilities. Dave, Robert, and even Linda received approximately $90,000 after their mother's passing, and Robert was to be given an extra $20,000 if he worked on the farm for an additional 10 years after her death. After inheriting the farm, he used that money to turn it into a multi-dimensional, multi-operational landscape, eventually fitted with a slaughterhouse and littered with vehicles and vehicle parts, as one of his hobbies would be to deconstruct cars and sell their components. He also eventually acquired horses, one of which was his favorite, Goldie. When Goldie died, Robert decapitated the horse and took the head to a taxidermist, who fitted it to be hung in Robert's bedroom on the wall. Despite his oddities, the arrangement worked out well. Robert always knew he'd end up on the farm forever, and now he had the added bonuses of a slaughterhouse fitted with meat hooks on the ceiling and a butcher shop. Robert Picton could raise, tend to, slaughter, butcher, package, and sell his pigs all in one place. It was perfect. However, for someone as deeply disturbed as Robert Picton, this setup allowed him to slaughter and butcher much more than just pigs. And similarly, he could do it all in one place. It was perfect. Any remains, be it from pigs or women from Vancouver's downtown east side, could be immediately dealt with, whether that be being passed through the meat grinder, being fed to the pigs as slop, being scattered along the property for other animals to eat, or being placed in the same 40-foot mass grave together. All on the property, all in the same place. It didn't take very long after Robert Pickton's parents died that him and his brother realized they had no oversight when it came to farm operations, and eventually the both of them started to neglect their responsibilities. The Pickton Pig Farm would become every local criminal's favorite place to hang out, including the Hells Angels. The entire farmstead would turn into a party palace of sorts, and eventually the Pickton brothers would even register it as a nonprofit the Piggy Palace Good Time Society with the Canadian government in 1996. Their justification for registering the farm as a nonprofit was that it was allegedly being used to quote organize, coordinate, manage and operate events, functions, dances, shows and exhibitions on behalf of services, sports and worthy organizations. In reality, The events being hosted at the Piggy Palace Good Times Society were raves, parties, and illicit drug benders. At times, these parties attracted as many as 2,000 attendees, all coming to the Piggy Palace for good times, some of the free-floating drugs being passed around, and a place to find sex easy. Eventually, the nonprofit title would be taken away after a lawsuit was served by Port Coquitlam officials, an injunction banned parties, and a lack of transparency about their financial statements determined that they were no longer eligible to be a nonprofit. But the party still went on. On the weekends, the farm was a misty landscape that smelled of manure, sex, and burnt crack cocaine. Robert Picton was living the high life, amongst people who didn't judge him and were happy to be around him, as someone who was deeply now intertwined with criminal society, someone who had easy access to drugs and was more than willing to share, someone who had no issue bringing as many sex workers as he could fit in his car back to the farm to be passed around amongst the partygoers. In his spare time, Robert Picton found himself wandering Vancouver's downtown East Side. He had amassed quite a unique circle of associates who were quite familiar with the comings and goings of the drug addicts, unhoused population, and sex workers who lived there. Often the people of Vancouver's downtown east side were all three. It's unclear exactly when Robert Picton started taking women back to his farm and not returning them. Some speculate it was as early as the seventies, most say the eighties after he inherited his farm. Some say nineteen ninety five. But regardless, it only started garnering attention from law enforcement in 1998. For quite some time were there rumors floating around Vancouver's downtown east side that women of the streets were going missing. And according to that same article I read by Tim Connolly, the disappearance of sex workers from the Low Track area was not of concern to law enforcement, despite family members of missing women insisting that a pattern was arising, insisting that their loved ones were not just missing, as if that's any justification for police not to search for someone, but that's the excuse they used. Law enforcement wasn't thinking about these women as people, people who had families, friends, and social workers. Even if it was common for many of them to disappear for a little while, given the tumultuous nature of the lives they lived, the families knew when the length of time they didn't hear from their loved ones was out of character, and yet law enforcement didn't care. They didn't care when, even starting in 1991, families of missing women from Vancouver's downtown east side had been holding annual remembrance ceremonies, making the ever-growing number of missing women even more of a concern, as every year, these ceremonies attracted larger and larger crowds. It's no secret now that whoever was responsible for these disappearances was able to get away with murder for quite a long time. It's no secret now that whoever was responsible for these disappearances was able to get away with quite a few murders and for quite a long time. We now know that that person was Robert Picton, who amassed quite a long list of vulnerable victims. In the mid-90s, as mentioned, the fact that women were continuously disappearing from Vancouver's downtown east side was a sobering reality for the residents of the area, and especially the sex workers who were still there. The families were frustrated, and law enforcement was apathetic. Some smaller news outlets were beginning to pick up on the story, were beginning to recognize the patterns that everyone else who lived in the Vancouver downtown Eastside area was already seeing, but minor media coverage was not enough to put sufficient pressure on Vancouver police to act on this emerging pattern of disappearances. In their eyes, since there were no bodies turning up, and missing addicts and sex workers wasn't a pressing issue to them, they didn't see any reason to act. This was true even after Robert Picton was charged with attempted murder, and his name was officially on police's radar, or at least it should have been. He had been quite literally caught red-handed trying to murder a sex worker, a sex worker who would escape and tell her story to police, and he would still not be arrested for almost another half a decade. In March of 1997, a woman by the name of Wendy Lynn Eyesteader arrived at the Eagle Ridge Hospital in Port Moody, British Columbia. She was clearly battered, bloodied, and was holding on to a single stab wound to her stomach. Wendy had just fled an attempted murder at the Picton Farm, and with the handcuffs still on her wrists, relayed every detail to police about her attack and her attacker. This included the critical details of Wendy being able to disarm her attacker and use his own weapon against him, thus stabbing him right back just before fleeing. And she did all of this while the healthcare team treated her many lacerations and stomach wound. Robert Pickton himself thought it wise to seek treatment for the wound that Wendy evidently left on him as well after disarming him, and it was bleeding more than a little dirt packing could handle. Coincidentally, or maybe not so, Robert ended up at the same hospital as Wendy, and the healthcare staff who were working that evening were able to find the key to unlock Wendy's handcuffs in Robert Pickton's pants pocket. Despite clear evidence of a brutal attempted murder being right there in their face, and despite an attempted murder charge being laid on Robert Pickton for this attack, the case was dismissed in January of 1998, and the charge of attempted murder was dropped. Police's reasoning for this was that they were having trouble cooperating with Wendy and were struggling with her credibility, given she was a heroin addict from Low Track. They didn't think she was stable enough to testify and secure a conviction against Robert Picton, and so he was free of any wrongdoing in the eyes of the law. We know now in hindsight that he was not free of any wrongdoing, and in fact, this was a critical slip up for him. He very easily could have been caught. And if police followed through, and did their due diligence, and worked with Wendy even though she was a heroin addict, even though she was a sex worker, it's quite possible that many, many lives could have been saved. The public would come to find out later that the boots Robert Picton was wearing on the night of this attack against Wendy had traces of blood evidence on them. But they were seized when he was arrested, and were not returned, but instead kept in an evidence locker for years. Six years, to be exact. It was only after all of Robert Picton's successful murders came to light and he was arrested that those boots were tested for DNA evidence and returned a match to two women who had gone missing from the same low-track neighborhood in 1996 and 1997. In September of 1998, after well over a decade of public pressure, the Vancouver Police decided to set up a team of investigators to review files of missing women from the city's downtown east side, going as far back as 1971. The Missing Persons Unit had been summoned to investigate specifically 17 missing women whose disappearances may all be connected, and the lead investigator, Lorimer Schenner, was only on day two of his new role when an anonymous caller identified someone they thought may be responsible for all of these missing women. The fact that this missing persons unit receives a phone call identifying Robert Pickton as the potential assailant only on day two of this team actually being assembled, I think speaks volumes to how late the Vancouver Police were to this game. Regardless. This caller did identify Robert Picton as the person they thought could be responsible, and they also told Investigator Schenner that police could find personal items of missing victims on Robert Picton's property, including handbags, identity cards, and likely even DNA on bloody clothes. Investigator Schenner then entered Robert Picton's name into the Vancouver Police Department database, and the attempted murder charge from the year prior came up, and also the fact that it was dropped. Although Investigator Schenner found this interesting and maybe even compelling, the Missing Persons Unit wouldn't investigate Robert Pickton in a meaningful way for quite some time. However, upon further independent investigation, Schenner spoke to several of Robert's acquaintances and heard more than his fair share of disturbing stories. Robert Pickton's acquaintances shared stories of sick jokes that he would tell, reportedly boasting about disposing of bodies using his industrial meat grinder the one used for his pigs. Schenner also got a hold of a woman named Lynn Ellingson, one of Robert's other friends, who would go on to claim a convincing story about seeing a woman hanging from a meat hook on Robert Picton's property. At this point, the gut feeling Schenner had about Picton was strong, and an added layer of credibility was given to Ellingson's recount when she said she, quote, "...didn't realize human fat was yellow." In the eyes of Investigator Schenner, this was enough to bring Robert Picton in for questioning, which would have been the job of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police because his property was just outside of Vancouver City's limit. If you're unfamiliar with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP as I'll refer to them for the rest of this episode, they are Canada's Federal and National Police Service, comparable to the FBI or the CIA in the United States. I don't know which one. Maybe both. When law enforcement did visit Robert Pickton's farm, he obviously denied killing anyone and said to come back during the rainy season because he was too busy to have a sit-down conversation with police. He also consented to a search of the property when asked, but that and the interview were never followed up on. Further, whether it was Lynn Ellingson's inherent distrust of police, which often happens for sex workers who live in low track, or whether it was a matter of feeling pressured, she would go on to deny ever saying that she saw a dead woman hanging from a meat hook on Robert's property. She would change her story again, eventually doubling down on her original story after confessing she depended on Robert Picton for drugs and she was afraid to come forward and be honest with what she saw. Regardless, change your story once and in the eyes of the law, you lose your credibility. Even worse was that many of Schenner's plans to investigate Robert Picton further were dismissed which included a sting operation and the chance to sit in on a piggy palace party, which he was obviously frustrated by, having done many sting operations before and being very comfortable with the process. Some of the sting operations investigator Schenner had done before included posing as a sex worker in low track and witnessing the violence they faced firsthand. A quote from him said, If these women were from any other walk of life, there would be total outrage, Search parties, volunteers, and roadblocks. But evidently there was none of that. Even when witnesses were coming forward and stating that there was absolutely something sinister happening on Robert Picton's farm, even when a woman escaped within an inch of her life and the keys to the handcuffs that were still latched to her wrists were found in his pocket, even then, even through it all, Robert Picton was still able to get away with many more murders. By the time Vancouver Police and the RCMP were ready to work together because the problem of missing women in Vancouver's downtown east side was serious enough, it would be three years since that anonymous phone call name-dropped Robert Picton to Investigator Schenner. At this time, the list of missing women was ever-growing, with over 50 being investigated in connection with each other by the end of 2001. Finally, they came together and undertook Project Even-Handed a special project to see if they could find out what the links were between the mass amounts of sex workers who had been snatched from low track. Even then, although a step in the right direction, it took the better part of 2001 for the task force to comb through every predator and sex offender in the surrounding area that they knew of before finally getting across to Robert Picton's file and revisiting that attempted murder charge from 1997. By early 2002, this task force had probable cause to search the Picton farm and look for an unlicensed firearm. I'm not sure what prompted them to start searching for an unlicensed firearm. Some of the sources I read stated that it came from reports from former associates of the Picton family, stating that they had unlicensed guns on their property. Essentially, they were searching the farm for things totally unrelated to their investigation, but they were searching it nonetheless. The RCMP were able to secure a search warrant of the Picton property in search for these unregistered weapons, and that was executed on February 5th of 2002. It was a junior RCMP officer who arrived at the property, not necessarily expecting to find anything as harrowing as he did, but when he arrived, out of the corner of his eye, he spotted an asthma inhaler with the name Serena Abbotsway on it one of the missing women on the list of Project Even-Handed to investigate. Serena Abbotsway was among Mona Wilson, Jacqueline Michelle McDonald, Diane Rosemary Rock, Heather Bottomley, Jennifer Firminger, Helen Hallmark, Patricia Johnson, Heather Chunuk, Tanya Hollick, Sherry Irving, Inga Hall, Tiffany Drew, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Rebecca Jardin, Diana Melnick, Deborah Lynn Jones, Georgina Papin, Brenda Wolfe, Wendy Crawford, Carrie Koski, Wendy Allen, Andrea Faye Borhaven, Cara Louise Ellis, also known as Nikki Trimble to some, Andrea Josbury, Marnie Frey, and a Jane Doe who would all be connected to Robert Picton over the following months. This list does not include the disappearances of some women that Robert Picton is suspected to be involved in, it was just never proved. This includes Mary Ann Clark, also known as Nancy Greek to some, Yvonne Bowen, Dawn Teresa Cray, Lillian Jean O'Dare, who very well may have been his first victim, and two additional unidentified women. After the discovery of Serena Abbotsway's inhaler, both Robert and his brother Dave were arrested in February of 2002. Further searches around the farm yielded horrific discoveries, and certainly that word is an understatement, but there is simply no single word that can describe what police discovered on that day that could truly articulate the gruesomeness of what was found. I'll warn you now, the next minute or so is going to get a little ugly. In addition to personal items from missing women, police also found two 5-gallon or about 18-liter baskets stacked on top of each other each of which contained skulls, hands, and partial feet of Serena Abbotsway and Andrea Josbury. Both of these women had been shot. They also found the skull, hands, and feet of Mona Wilson, in addition to 14 various human bones laying around, belonging to Georgina Pappen and Brenda Wolfe, whose jaw and teeth were found next to the slaughterhouse, and a tooth belonging to Marnie Frey. These six women, Serena, Andrea, Georgina, Brenda, and Marnie, were the only ones Robert was facing initial second-degree murder charges for, but they weren't the only charges that would be laid. Over the course of 2002 and beyond, charges would be laid for an additional 20 women, including Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Firminger. By the time fall of 2002 rolled around, Project Evenhanded had expanded their investigation to 63 potential victims at the hands of Robert Picton. Excavations continued on the farm throughout 2002 and into mid 2003, with police utilizing every possible avenue of investigative rigor to find out how many women Robert Picton had murdered on his property. Forensic anthropologists brought in equipment and sifted through all 17 acres of the Picton farm using two 50-foot-long flat conveyor belts to get through all the soil. This was an insurmountable task, considering the sheer number of potential victims, in addition to the number of pigs Robert Picton had slaughtered over the years, and each mass grave of pigs and people scattered over 17 acres of land had to be investigated. As the excavations and searches continued and charges kept being laid, including for Heather Chinook, Tanya Hollick, and Sherry Irving, more discoveries would be made that would shake British Columbia to its core. On March 10th of 2004, the provincial government released a statement regarding how Robert Picton may or may not have disposed of his victims in the same way that he disposes of pigs in the meat market. A public health warning was issued by the British Columbia Health Authority, and a statement from the British Columbia Health Officer at the time, Perry Kendall, read, quote, "Given the state of the farm and what we know about the investigation, we cannot rule out the possibility that cross-contamination may have occurred. That could mean that human remains did get into or contaminate some of the pork meat. Analysis of all the body parts proved to be incredibly difficult for investigators, given many of them were in advanced stages of decomposition if not completely skeletonized and scattered all over the farm, eaten by insects and pigs if not being fed directly to them. But on May 26 of 2005, police were able to lay 12 more charges against Robert Picton for the murders of Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Tiffany Drew, Sarah DeVries, the Jane Doe, and more, bringing the official legally recognized victim count to 27. Although this number is staggering in itself, we cannot forget that Project Evenhanded was investigating 63 and when being held in a Surrey, British Columbia jail, awaiting proceedings, Robert Pickton confessed to an undercover officer posing as a jail cell mate that he had killed 49 women and was angry with himself for getting sloppy because he really wanted to make it to 50. This statement would later be disclosed to jury at trial, but before that trial began, the charge against him for the murder of that Jane Doe was eventually dropped after Robert refused to enter a plea And the courts entered a not guilty plea on his behalf this prompted justice james williams who would go on to preside over the entire case deeming that the court failed to meet the minimum requirements as per section 581 of the canadian criminal code to proceed this section of the canadian criminal code essentially requires that prosecutors ensure each count charged contains sufficient detail of the alleged offense to give the accused reasonable information with respect to what they're being charged with. In this case, we can't know exactly what Justice James Williams was referring to as there was a publication ban over this phase of the trial. But regardless, this brought the charges of second-degree murder down to 26, but likely Robert Picton had more victims than anyone could count. The entire legal ordeal began with pre-trial proceedings in June of 2005 in the British Columbia Supreme Court in New Westminster only after preliminary hearings occurred from January to July of 2003, all while those additional charges were being laid. The pretrial hearings finally ended in 2005 and the trial itself began in January of 2007 after a full year of discussions on the admissibility of evidence and discovery between the prosecution and defense. This process was excruciatingly long, especially for the families of the victims, but after all, Robert Pickton was of course going to plead not guilty to all charges, as many men who are serial killers tend to do, simply because they enjoy inflicting as much pain as possible on those who are already suffering, therefore each minute piece of evidence had to be studied in detail and disclosed. During the trial, before the Crown Prosecution began presenting their case, Justice James Williams had choice words to say about the evidence that was going to be presented to the jury, given the nature of the crimes were so horrific, and the photos of evidence catalogued were even worse. For example, one article I read about the discovery of Mona Wilson described her remains as laying in a bath of pink decomposition soup inside of a green garbage can with a brown one placed on top of it. Justice James Williams only saw it fit to warn the jury beforehand of this and that it was going to be a long and very heavy trial. He told the jury that the evidence may, quote, overwhelm the objective and impartial approach jurors are supposed to bring to their task, but advised them to be cautious about this and check their biases to ensure that doesn't happen. I can't say I would have been able to do it. He also ruled that the families of the victims could attend the opening arguments, but if they were being called to testify for any reason, they would not be allowed to enter the courtroom until after their testimony was completed. In addition, given the size and complexity of this case, Justice Williams decided to separate all 26 charges against Robert Picton, so as not to overwhelm the jury with deciding on rulings for 26 violent deaths in a trial that was already projected to be one of the longest and most expensive that the country of Canada has ever seen. Given that, this trial was only to proceed in prosecuting Robert Picton for the murders of six women, Serena Abbotsway, Mona Wilson, Marnie Frey, Georgina Papin, Brenda Wolfe, and Andrea Josbury. Between the date of his arrest and the date of the trial beginning, the Crown had a lot of time to prepare quite a large case against Robert Picton. This included intentions on calling 240 witnesses to testify, including family members of victims some of which were not happy about this given it would exclude them from the courtroom until after their testimony concluded. During the trial, the jury saw photos of and heard testimony about graphic evidence discovered on the farm, including hearing from prosecutor Darrell Previtt, who told the court about two heads found in a freezer on the farm, each of which was vertically cut in half. They heard of Mona Wilson and saw photos of her remains in that decomposition soup, with the two halves of her skull, her hands, her feet, and a 22 caliber gun in the green garbage bin. There were moments when the jury had to recess at instruction from Justice Williams after being visibly and understandably shaken by what they had seen. I'm sure the defense must have known that no amount of or rigor with rebuttal would have washed the jurors memories of those photos, nor the investigators who made those discoveries, but they still tried to argue Robert Picton's innocence, not denying that dozens of dismembered women were found on his property, but denying that he killed them. They tried to argue that some of the blood found was, in fact, glue, and that the prosecution's key witnesses, including Lynn Ellingson, who was that acquaintance of Robert Picton who saw a woman hanging from a meat hook on the farm, were not credible. Lynn Ellingson admitted to being high on crack cocaine during much of the time she spent with Robert, but I'm sure after seeing the photos they saw, the jury understood that when you bear witness to such a horrific discovery, it doesn't leave you, even if you are high on crack. Thankfully, despite any attempts at trying to instill reasonable doubt, Robert Picton was convicted of the second degree murder of all six women on December 9th of 2007 after almost a full year of proceedings. The courts intended on trying the other 20 murders at a later date, but given the sentence handed down to Robert Picton by Justice Williams, British Columbia Crown officials confirmed in 2010 that they would not do so, to spare the families from another trial and the court system from incurring any further costs, in addition to the almost $102 million that was allocated out of the British Columbia provincial budget to clean up Robert Picton's mess, again, both literally and legally. Robert Picton was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility for parole for 25 years, which is the longest possible sentence he could have received for the charges he was facing. Myself and many others are confident that he will never see the light of day again as a free man, as it should be. In 2010, Wally Opel, who is a Canadian-trained lawyer, former judge, and provincial politician, was appointed to lead the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry into the Robert Picton murders. He was instructed to conduct an inquiry and write an executive summary about exactly how and why Vancouver police failed so miserably when investigating the missing women of Vancouver's downtown Eastside area. In 2012, his report came out, and it was titled Forsaken, the report of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry Executive Summary. The title of Forsaken was a very intentional one, as during an address made by Wally Opel after the report came out, he stated that the women who were victimized by Robert Picton were forsaken twice, once by society at large, and again by Vancouver police. They were outcasted by society and then refused help, refused resources, refused critical inquiry, and refused the right to be protected as an inherently valuable human being in modern society. To call this report scathing is a large understatement. The report itself is divided into three volumes, one of which is entirely dedicated to how and why we failed the missing and murdered women. Each volume is subdivided into parts, and part three of that volume is titled Critical Police Failures, The headings range from poor report-taking and follow-up on reports of missing women, to failure to consider and properly pursue all investigative strategies, failure to follow major case management practices and policies, failure to address cross-jurisdictional issues and ineffective coordination between police forces and agencies, and failure of internal review and external accountability mechanisms. In short, this report essentially rips Vancouver police to shreds as it should. But it also included 63 recommendations which should serve as guidelines for police in the future on how to rectify what had been done to the victims of Vancouver's downtown east side and how Robert Picton's crimes had affected the entire community. His recommendations include allocating more funding and resources to sex workers of Vancouver's downtown east side in particular. This came alongside a recommendation to develop guidelines to facilitate and support vulnerable and intimidated witnesses by all actors within the criminal justice system. This point likely directly refers to Lynn Ellingson and how she was intimidated into backing out of her testimony before doubling down once again and losing her credibility entirely. The Honorable Wally Opel recommended that Indigenous liaison officers be hired the British Columbia Association of Municipal Police Chiefs should implement a protocol containing additional measures to monitor high-risk offenders, likely alluding to how police essentially fumbled the bag when it came to Robert Picton, and that the provincial government should establish an independent expert committee to develop a model and implementation plan for a greater Vancouver police force. Although I don't necessarily agree with all the recommendations made, I have to recognize that I'm just a 24 year old girl and not a politician or a lawyer or a former judge like Wally Opal is. And I also have to recognize that when Vancouver police put the bar in hell, when it comes to police investigations, anything that is done is a step in the right direction. The full report is fascinating, but it is a long read, so of course I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll have the entire thing linked on my website at crimopediapod.ca, along with the other sources I used for this episode. In 2013, many of the victims' children filed a civil lawsuit against the Vancouver Police Department, the RCMP, and the Crown for failing to protect their parents as victims. After all, as I had mentioned, many of the victim's own parents knew that something had been going on, something much more sinister than Vancouver police wanted to admit, and they even went as far as to outright deny that a serial killer was at work all these years. Meanwhile, even just the six murders Robert Picton faced justice for spanned over at least two years. However, we know that timeline doesn't do the gut feeling that community had about the situation justice. Even as early as the early 90s and late 80s were rumors about a serial killer circulating around Vancouver's low track area. Many of the sex workers there could see and feel their friends disappearing. Their families, co-workers on the street, and caseworkers were heartbroken to know that continuously were the Vancouver police choosing to ignore what was becoming an epidemic. In 1995, a diary entry from sex worker Sarah DeVries details how her friends are disappearing all around her, almost in front of her eyes. Quote, is he watching me now, stalking me like a predator and its prey, waiting, waiting for some perfect spot, time, or my stupid mistake? Sarah herself would disappear in April of 1998 and traces of her DNA would be found on Robert Pickton's farm, although he was never prosecuted for her murder. The children of the victims involved in the civil lawsuit were each compensated $50,000, but the Crown, nor the RCMP, nor the Vancouver Police accepted liability for their lack of action. As of now, what happened to the rest of the 63 women on the list of Project Even-Handed to investigate is completely unknown. It is truly unfathomable to imagine life on the streets as a sex worker, whether it be by choice or by force through oppressive policy reform, and especially in Canada, where you are in one of the most free countries in the world, and yet there is no one there to protect you, even when they are bound by the law to do so. Although Robert Picton is one of the most, if not the most prolific serial killer Canada has ever seen, he is certainly not the only individual to get away with the murders of dozens of sex workers. I'm sure you all have heard of Gary Ridgway or the Green River Killer who confessed to killing 48 sex workers. Robert Hansen murdered anywhere between 15 and 21. Peter Sutcliffe murdered 13 and attacked at least seven in what's known as the Ipswich serial murders. And we can't forget Jack the Ripper. In a book titled Lost Girls, journalist Robert Kolker explores how multiple police departments across Canada and the United States continuously fail to investigate the missing and murdered sex workers of these nations. Police apathy towards the safety and wellness of sex workers certainly leads to negligence like we've seen. And in one quote from Robert Kolker, he states, There's a tremendous amount of crime out there. They're never going to solve everything, so they play the numbers. They look at a woman who is over 21 years old and who is missing and a sex worker, and they think that a person leads an itinerant life and may not even be in trouble. Meanwhile, there are 16 other cases staring at them in the face and they have a better chance of solving. But in hindsight, we know that Vancouver police and the RCMP had a great chance of solving the case of all of these missing and murdered sex workers in British Columbia well before it actually happened. If only Wendy Eystetter, who escaped Robert Picton and was brought to hospital, was taken seriously. If only the RCMP were able to follow through on their promises to search the Picton family farm and interrogate him well before they actually did. If only lead investigator Schenner from the missing persons unit in Vancouver police was taken seriously when he had a hunch about Robert Picton and devised a plan to conduct a sting operation, one that never happened due to pushback from his colleagues. But like we see time and time again, when a young middle to upper class white woman disappears, the entire nation, the entire continent is up in flames. Why is it that in the eyes of law enforcement, Some people's lives are more valuable than others. That is a question I cannot seem to wrap my head around. I don't know how to express to people who are supposed to uphold the law and protect the safety of others that they should care about other people, not because they hold this title or this occupation, but because of their inherent value as people. This is something I struggle with with each case that I cover. Total lack of police competency and effort leads to devastating consequences, not only for the surrounding community and the families of the victims, but also the states and provinces as a whole. The last update we have about Robert Pickton is that he is growing old and will likely die in prison, and as of 2015, the farm property was placed under lien by the Crown in Right of British Columbia, and in the meantime, all buildings except a small barn have been demolished. Unfortunately, burying of the farm represents decades of burying these cases by Vancouver police. And now there are at least anywhere from 30 to 40 women whose fates will be entirely forever unknown because Robert Picton will never face charges for their potential murders and there is nothing left still standing to investigate. As of 2018, it appears that Robert Picton has been transferred out of British Columbia and now resides in a prison in Quebec. Police never disclosed why they were moving him or what that was all about, but I'm happy to see that he's away from British Columbia and that the families of the victims can finally start to really heal. There are a couple books about this case that I highly recommend you read or listen to if you get the chance. This one is so incredibly complex and dynamic with lots of moving parts that have been happening even as late as 2018. Of course, I had to leave some stuff out for the sake of time, but if you're interested in diving more into this case, I highly recommend On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women by Stevie Cameron. I also recommend that you do some learning about sex workers in Canada and the violence they face despite working history's oldest job in the book. Sex workers are disproportionately targeted for violence. They are also largely parts of marginalized communities and visible minorities, such as indigenous peoples, black women, and transgender women. If not for people like us, who feel compelled enough by their stories to learn more and educate ourselves about what they go through on a day-to-day basis, there would be no change. We must continue to advocate for social services in our communities and ensure that these women and these people are safe. Certainly, law enforcement isn't going to do that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia Podcast on the two-year anniversary. I'm so grateful to have been here with you for two years, and I can't wait to see where the Crimopedia Podcast takes us next year. If you'd like to look at any of the source material I used for this episode, you can find it at crimopediapod.ca under 2023 episodes. This episode will have its own specific page, as do all the other ones except for those published in 2021. You can also get a hold of me on Instagram at crimopediapod, and you can also email me if you want to talk about a case or give me a case suggestion and don't feel like filling out the form, and you can get a hold of me there at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. Thank you to the few of you who had sent me this case as a suggestion back in 2021 and I had never done it. I really appreciate your patience and I hope I did it justice. I'll be back here wherever you're listening now on March 31st, 2023 at 10am with a new episode. But until then, stay safe, sex work is real work, and again, just leave women alone.